0: And so at that point, you'd, what you'd expect sort of modern, missional minded people to say, and then Jesus said, no, no, just kidding, guys. It's not that hard at all. Like, come on back, the water's fine. But instead he just turned to Peter and said, are you gonna leave too? Peter says, where else am I gonna go? You have the words of eternal life.
1: welcome to the stand firm podcast i'm nick Lannon of grace anglican church in louisville kentucky here as usual with matt kennedy of the anglican church of the good shepherd in binghamton new york and jd coke of christ anglican church in mount pleasant south carolina how you fellas doing today very good yeah good nick it's 60 and sunny here in louisville has the ice cap started to melt yet up there in new york matt (laughs)
2: Let's see. It was uh, minus twenty wind chill factor yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) And yes, we're
1: laughing at your pain. (laughs) I assume it's beautiful in Mount Pleasant as always, JD. Uh, It is a little bit
0: actually. It's a little rainy, uh, but yeah, it's not nothing. um, Still very pleasant. Still very pleasant here on the mountain in the west country.
1: (laughs) The day after tomorrow, like it is outside Matt's house every single day. (laughs) That's right. Well, listen, you guys, over the course of our last several episodes, we've discussed the publication of and reaction to the ACNA College of Bishops pastoral statement on sexuality and identity. We keep planning episodes on other topics, but there keep being new developments on this one. There was, as we discussed, a Dear Gay Anglican's letter, a retraction thereof, and then several statements about that retraction. There was a letter from Archbishop Foley Beach to his diocese. There was a public statement from the Archbishop of Nigeria, largely addressed to the ACNA. There was another brief statement from the College of Bishops. It's been a lot. And we realized, as we were talking about what we were going to do today, that were we to try to review everything that's happened just since our last recording, it would take our whole time just to describe it without actually giving us any time to say anything of substance about it. So what we've decided to do is to just take one thing and try to talk about it in some depth, hoping that it'll give us a chance to get to all the issues at play. So what we're gonna do today is look in detail at an article written by Andrew Goddard that was posted on Fulcrum, which is a UK website under the title, gay Christians ACNA and Gafcon now Matt you've got some experience with him why don't you say a quick word about who Andrew Goddard is before we start looking at what it is he's
2: said sure I mean Andrew Goddard is kind of evangelical aristocracy within the Church of England uh, he's been uh, he's very well connected with the people there and he's you know he's part of the he's part of the Church of England Orthodox clergy who you know, they typically are, they're going to take, they're going to always take the the classical Orthodox position, but they're always going to do so in a way that is compromising, maybe from our perspective, you know, during, during the, during the wars, Fulcrum was always critical. They always preferred to use my uh, contemporary, nomenclature, contemporary terms. They, they punched right. You know, anytime stand Firm we come out with something, you know, critiquing the left critiquing the the the, uh, the revisionist movement within the cv e or in the the church or in the, the episcopal church fulcrum would say yeah well that's kind of true but you know let's try and find a way we can all stay around the table the unity seemed to be the driving factor behind fulcrum in those days and andrew goddard was part of that nice guy i met him he's a nice guy and and also like maybe maybe an equivalent in the states would be and maybe you guys remember this i'm not sure if you do with the anglican, anglican Communion institute the aci mm-hmm. was also they, they teamed up with welcome a lot uh, kind of an intellectual self self-proclaimed intelligentsia orthodox intelligentsia of the anglican world always counseling you know, a soft soap response to heresy Always trying to, you know, how can we, how can we craft the most milk toast, uh, re- <laughs> re- milk toast uh, reaction to the latest insanity by the Episcopal Church or the Church of England to justify our not actually doing anything?
0: I'm going to need you to be a little less nuanced. There, right? There's mad I'm, the I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm um, getting PTSD. I'm not that's sure what, what you really. I'm not right. sure what you really think about it. I um, mean.
2: <laughs> I mean, this, these are guys like the the General McClellan of the of the Orthodox Ang- Anglican world. You know, I mean, sitting back, you know, getting gigantic armies in the in the banks of the Potomac, but then just kind of sitting there and prancing around. Um, that's that's kind of how. <laughs> How it was. And so again, very I'm not ready. clear of what right? you're I don't
0: understand <laughs> clearly what you're saying. All right. All right. All right. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that because it, it was my experience. I mean, I was serving over there in the granted, it was the Diocese of Europe, but it was in the Church of England for six years. And I ran into a a, a lot of um, you know, self proclaimed Church of England evangelicals. And and it was interesting to me always that there was there were certainly some theological um, sympathies that I would have with them, but there was always an implicit um sort of critique or outright judgment of the sort of schismatics, as it was often called, within the uh, Episcopal Church, that there was definitely a a knee-jerk reaction against people who would, would even consider breaking uh, communion or fellowship over these theological issues, even if they agreed with the theological issues. And I think that had a lot to do in some ways with, um, you know, the erasting nature of the, of the church of England. I mean, you know, the national uh, uh, sort of set up um, state church is sort of a birthright for Christian people. So it's not, you know, it's like, well, I'm not going to leave. You need to leave, you know, sort of thing. Um, but also I think that there was a temperament issue. You know, I think there was a, a sense that, you know, the wild West, uh, you know, Know, cowboy anglicans uh, were were hot-headed over against sort of more measured and more nuanced um, and i think we're seeing a little bit of that at least play out a little bit in this letter that he's or this article that he's writing
1: well um, let's get to the article we have a lot that we want to get to we're going to go through it sort of top to bottom and hitting some some things that jumped out at us as worthy of discussion and potentially Perhaps correction, and uh, we'll see how far we get, and we we'll tr- try not to make this a three-hour podcast. Um, but right at the top of the article, he quotes an author named David Bennett, author of The War of Loves, and part of the relatively lengthy quote that he quotes is the accusation that we, i.e. the people to whom the statement is addressed, aren't even permitted the terms gay or same-sex attracted, and yet they, i.e. the bishops, use them entirely throughout. So how do we react to this claim that they are in fact using the very language that they would seek to prevent others from using?
0: Well, I saw this. This was a common refrain, not just by him, but it was picked up on Twitter, and a number of people uh, pointed that out with sort of the mic drop. There's no mic drop GIF, or there is a GIF, but there, whatever the Twitter emoji for a mic drop. But apparently, that was a definitive statement as to sort of the inanity and the hypocrisy of it all. You know, that was the implication. And I think there's a couple of thoughts here. One, you know, I went back and reread after reading this, I reread the bishop statement, and and as far as I could tell, without exception, and I may someone may correct us, but at, at the very the overwhelming majority of the time the word actual gay was used was as a descriptive as to how the culture was being used or as a as a particular instance of how the adjective gay Christian in this respect was to be avoided or to be understood um, in certain sort of again descriptive ways and so it was not entirely fair to say that they are just wantonly saying you can't say it but then we're going to keep identifying you as such I don't think that's a good faith statement but but in addition to that you know in a broader level I think that as I made the point to someone speaking about this, is it what if and when the people do in fact fall into these patterns of using gay Christian or just calling someone gay or not gay as the case may be, then that is even more of a of an indication of how important this resetting of the language is because we have all been taught erroneously as as in swimming in the waters of Freud and Nietzsche's love child, that language and sex are the, that sex is the most important thing about you and language is how that power will be uh, disseminated throughout our, our b- body, uh, our culture and so you know to the extent that we even think as part of our our categories as christians about such and such person being gay well that needs to be addressed and it needs to be confessed and and re- rebuilt i mean you know i don't i don't we reject the whole the uh, linguistic notion of defining people constitut- constitutively by their their quote unquote sexual identity and the fact that we all do that is a part of the fact, is a, is a reflection of how deeply immersed in this current cultural milieu we are and I think that's so so again to, to the extent that that even happens outside of this letter or the bishop's letter is even more indication of how important it is for us to begin as early as possible and as as consistently. As as possible to redirect our own language, our own thinking. I mean, how many times have you, you know, you meet people and they made a certain set of, um, stereotypical, uh, superficial qualities on any number of things. But let's happen to say it's quote unquote sexual identity and you just can't help but immediately go to that next step in your own thinking, in your determination of who they are, which is a non-Christian determination because God doesn't, this, that's not a Christian thing to think. And so to the extent that any of us continue to operate in that way, then we prayerfully confess and rework our own thinking. And that's something that, you know, that, that, that I think is important.
2: I mean, I'm, gra- I'm glad you pointed out the S and they aspect to that comment because that goes to the heart of of the problem. I think that the bishops were, were pointing out, and, and that is this kind of tendency. You heard it in the quote: uh, this tendency to identify this kind of this disordered desire or the disorder, disordered attraction, as as equivalent to uh, an oppressed minority group. So. So it's you know we as these abused, victimized people should be able to to describe our our understanding of our suffering in whatever terms we please, and you shouldn't impose upon us your your terminology. Well, no, I mean the way that the bishops are pointing to for for describing this orientation, this this disorder is anyway the, the scriptures do too. It's something that you're you're abused by. It's, it's something that is to be confessed as sin. So, so no, it's, it's not that we, it's not that people who have this attraction are some kind of, are some kind of oppressed minority that needs to be able to to define their own terms. They're not any more than, than those who are uh, attracted to animals or those who are attracted to people of their own family or people who are attracted to children are. It's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a victimized minority group um and so recognize if people recognize that like if you and i look back look down into our own souls and see those aspects of our souls that are disordered to the extent that we are recognizing or seeing those things through the lens of biblical morality and sanctification we are going to say oh my goodness please help me god not i get to i get to call myself by whatever name i want and kind of redeem this thing or at least identify with this thing and form a community around it
0: yeah, and we've said it before, and I mean, it's it's, and again, and it's just it's a slightly frustrating um, that there's this implication that somehow the this issue or these these arguments are somehow new. And that we're going to be caught flat-footed or unprepared for them. I mean, you know, we've only been talking about some form of this for decades, you know, 20-plus years, explicitly, not even implicitly, with respect to how do Christian people love sinners and welcome all to the foot of the cross and nevertheless maintain biblical fidelity in light of human sexual brokenness. Like, we have been dealing with this. And so, you know, again, it goes back to the question of how can describe an aspect of what a, quote-unquote, gay identity would be that is unique and not sinful. That isn't also just a function of, of friendship and humanity. You can't do it, or at least you can't from the Bible, because anything you start saying is um, again stereotypical and and reductionistic. You know, I mean, you could I mean, one can imagine any sorts of things. Like we've read in some of the uh, spiritual friendship blogs, you know, there's people argue that there's a particular aesthetic sensibility that gay people have. Well, that or, or that people consider themselves gay have. I mean, that's that's totally superficial and 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 laughable in in terms of its narcissism, really, you know, I mean, there's a it's like starting to argue that there's a there's a a special um, charism for intelligent style and humor, you know, that a certain, um, quote unquote, sexual identity would have. And that's just ridiculous. And so, again, to the extent that you have this uh, this adjective that is being used amongst the bishops at least in the letter and and you know I'm sure with some exceptions I mean we all fall back into swimming in the water that we're swimming in there is still an attempt to to speak precisely and uh, well to speak precisely about about this issue and it's going to fail but to criticize someone as if they as if they aren't aware of the difficulty is to actually sort of um, misunderstand the entire reason the letter was written in the first place because a whole letter was written precisely again because this is a difficult linguistic issue and we need to start from the earliest teachings that we can within the acna to re-educate people about how god talks about people not how the world does
2: yeah one last thing we should probably note before we run to the next part of the, of the letter of or or the article is that you know if you're if you're writing an article explaining why certain terminology can't be used or shouldn't be used. You're gonna have to use a terminology, right? So, so it's gonna, you're gonna have to say what those things are and why you can't use them. So necessarily, you're gonna have the bishops over and over again using gay Christian or same sex attracted Christian because they're having to explain it and what it is and and why it shouldn't be done. So it's a really nonsensical kind of obje- objection in the first place. No.
1: Well, after his discussion of this use of the adjectives, he goes on to refer to the Dear Gay Anglicans letter that we talked about in our last episode. And then he refers to its removal as, quote, strong arm Episcopal censorship. And I wanted to give you guys the opportunity to react to that phrasing of a bishop asking, perhaps even telling a member of an ACNA church to Remove something from the internet being characterized as strong-arm <laughs> Episcopal censorship.
0: Well, it's unsurprising, first of all, that a Western Anglican, uh, in the face of a bishop saying anything definitive or making any statement at all, or much less have some action behind it, would be um, would be shocking to the point of this <laughs> point of uh, you know like who is this man with this hat who deigns to have authority over me? I mean, it's you know it's somewhat of a function of the place where we are is that bishops who have um, say something courageous, definitive, unnuanced, and clear is considered to be a overreach of their authority because, you know, I mean, one loves to go back to the great divorce and the bishop that's in um, hell, you know, with the guy who's who's taking such courageous stands in every single place that the New York Times has baptized already his stance and the guy was saying, well, you know, uh, where exactly have you ever been persecuted from the culture's sake, from any of the stances you've taken, you know, and I think about that a lot when I think about uh, um, how shocking it's been and, and conversely refreshing as we've talked about to actually have bishops who we trust, who we have not crossed our fingers when we have taken avows under their authority. And then when they come and speak with, with courage and authority, again, it's, it's funny. It's, it's unsurprising to me that people consider that to be an overreach because they have never seen anything like it in their lifetimes.
2: Also, you know, this touches on something that, that Andrew Goddard argues throughout his article and he's either well, he's smarter than his argument, so so I, either he's riding with one side of his brain tied behind his back, um, or he's being intellectually dishonest because because he repeatedly makes the charge that the the bishops are being pedantic by just trying to to, to limit the descriptor. Right? It's just the word "gay" that they have a problem with, and and no, it's very clear if you read if you read the statement. That the, the reason they have an issue with the word "gay Anglican" or the descriptor "gay Anglican" or "gay" or the same-sex attracted Anglican or I'm sorry, Christian, is precisely because of the concept that it conveys or the idea right. that it conveys. It's it's not just the words; it's what it's what the words create and the underlying assumption and implication they point to, namely, uh, again, that this this disorder desire is something that I'm going to rest myself in That's as right. an identity
0: yeah and the idea i mean even in the original pastoral letter they they make allowances for the fact that in certain contexts it would be better off not to just immediately jump on someone who misuses uh, a term uh, like gay christian you know that you need to be pastorally sensitive to that i mean and i think they even say that but then you know the laughable thing and the really tragic sort of in my opinion embarrassing reality of a lot of this is the this this idea that, quote unquote, gay Anglicans was somehow seen as anything other than just this childish end around you know i mean like how many like how long did they think it was going to take before people like archer (laughs) chipotle said this is so clearly a way of trying to get around our clear prohibition i mean did they actually think that this was going to fool anyone i mean that's what i'm sort of saying like are we getting played is there like some other like oceans 13 thing going on here because (laughs) that doesn't seem to be very like a very good good uh uh, tact if you thought this was somehow going to be you know so sly and and clever it's like i don't know uh because you know i'm not the most subtle of people uh and it didn't take me that long to pick that up and yeah um,
2: i sensed it was kind of i i I felt that's what's one of the biggest objections i had to to peter Falk's letter in response i felt it was it was like a small child you know Okay, well, I can't, I can't say no, or I'm going to say I don't want to uh-uh, instead. Right. Right. Yeah, right, 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 right. So, in a, it, it kind of, to me, it betrayed a kind of deep anger and defiance more than anything else. Even though the the full the whole letter was, oh, we are we are in full compliance with those parts of the letter that we agree with. And- well, he has since said that he assumed that since it took a year
1: to write the statement, they wrote exactly what they meant, and that he considers. Them taking, K. Anglican to mean basically the same thing as K. Christian to be a moving of the goalposts. Ugh,
2: it's God. just absurd. Again, I go back to Jadius. It's it's absurd, and and it it does it does testify the fact that the Archbishop came back and Archbishop came back and 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 castigated. Uh, Peter Volk for his gay Anglican letter, uh, it testifies to the fact that Goddard was, re- was reading the statement wrong as well as Volk was reading the statement wrong because it, it's it wasn't the word or the phrase gay Christian. It was the concept underlying it, which Peter, in his response, reaffirmed
0: the only pride thing about what the bishop said is the fact that it came from the acna and it came um with with no objections at least understood objections at the time because that there has been a persistent and very uh, public ongoing disagreement events amongst like the revoice spiritual friendship quote-unquote gay christian movement and um entire denominations is clear I mean we've this is well ro- well well worn uh ground here you know I mean that. Since the very first Revoice Conference, the PCA members of the PCA, the Southern Baptist Convention, you know, various Anglicans individually, but there has been have um, have have rigorously discussed, and I think with with actually a fair amount of of grace and appreciation for the for a lot of the good that is represented by the celibate gay movement for as, as it is known of itself. Um, but I think that that's the only thing. Like all of these arguments that are now coming out have already been heard. They've already been made. They've already been written about. They've already been responded to. And there is actually a, a point of um, uh, disagreement that has arisen, eventually a disagreement comes. And again, it doesn't mean that there can be no resolution going forward, but this somehow this idea that this gay Anglican letter was gonna tread new ground um, with respect to the nuances of this conversation is again, like laughable. And it's in fact, some of the people that have been involved have been involved in the arguments with people of other denominations. So did they just not think that our bishops were also reading some of this information going up into it, that they somehow were like, wait, what's revoice? what is this? Like, I don't know what I've been doing. I've just been doing communion and 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 living into the beauty of holiness here as an Anglican. I haven't been paying attention to what Baptists and Presbyterians do. Like, that's not what happened. Like, they were aware of this. They were considerate. They were deliberate. And I think they were appropriately responsive to what was clearly a questioning of their of their wisdom and pastoral authority.
1: Let's stay on language here for a second. I think we've potentially address some of this in our answer to the last question, but let me um, let me say two things and I'll let you guys respond to them together because I think they're related and both have to do with language. Um, one of the things that he writes in the article is that the heart of this disagreement could be viewed as exactly what Paul warns Timothy about. And then he quotes 1 Timothy 6.4, they have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words and then 2 Timothy 2.14, warn them before God against quarreling about words that it is of no value and only ruins those who listen. So the first thing I wanted to ask you is, is this just a dis- disagreement about language and not substance? And I think you've, we've sort of already answered that. So let me move on. And you, can, you can circle back to that if you'd like. One of the other things that he asserts is that there are other adjectival qualifiers to the word Christian everywhere. And we think of many of them as okay. We call ourselves Anglican Christians or charismatic Christians or South American or black or married Christians. What's the difference between other adjectival modifiers and the word gay or same-sex attracted?
2: This is also where I think it's just, I can't, it's hard to to credit this objection with, with the the intellectual depth that some like Andrew Goddard brings to the conversation, so so okay, if he's if anyone is seriously saying they cannot see a difference between identifying as gay, a gay Christian, and identifying as say a black Christian or a white Christian or whatever. I don't, it's hard to even know how to respond to that because we're talking about neutral categories, morally neutral categories. Like if you're, whatever the color of your skin is, has no moral bearing whatsoever. Whatever your denomination is, has no moral bearing whatsoever. Well, okay.
0: With some exceptions. Uh, sorry, sorry. <laughs>
2: Maybe, you know, setting aside some ideas. Um, uh, but, but these are, these are morally neutral things. These are not talking about fundamentally disordered states of being. And, and, Gay is gay is referring to a fundamentally distorted state of being. So, so again, it's not like saying I'm an uh, I'm a, a Latino Christian. It's like saying I'm a bestial Christian, or I'm a, or I'm a porn Christian, or I'm a, you know, something along those lines. And it's it, so that it's, it's you're comparing apples and oranges.
1: Now, I've heard you make that comparison before, and I've heard you ably defend it, but I want just for our our own specific listeners, will you defend the comparison to a bestial Christian, please?
2: Sure. I mean, it's, look, go back to Leviticus 18.22, which is where we're first told that uh, that a man should not lay with another man, it's with a woman. And what's the very next verse? It's uh, Leviticus 18.23, which forbids bestial relationships. And then all of that, uh, you, the, the, the close proximity of those two, also in the proximity of, of, of the forbidding of idolatry, go back and, and I mean, uh, maybe we can link it in one of the in, in the show post. But Dr. Gagin talks about how serious a sin homosexuality is in the scriptures. It's not like heterosexual promiscuity, although that's bad too. It's a horrible sin. But because homosexuality and, and bestiality both, um, uh, I'm not sure what that was. Sorry about the ding. <laughs> like I lost. I lost a boxing match, match something. But, um, anyway, the the um, both of those are such such perversions of the created order that that they rise to a, to a to a both rise to unique levels of of depravity. Homosexuality does because it's like the elevation of narcissism. And you know what, what's the core of idolatry? It's the worship of the of the creature, right? So homosexuality is a form of narcissism. As you're worshiping something like yourself and, and, and in your sexual nature the uh, same thing with bestiality but you know you're worshiping something that's created the, the, the created order so they both go together. Uh, there's a there's a real good biblical reason for linking those two sins as like unto one another
1: even as shocking as it is to our 21st century years
0: but i think it's appropriately shocking because what it exposes is (laughs) what it exposes is the difficulty that we're facing which is that the the quote-unquote sexual identity has been raised to a constitutive essence of a human person so much so that they're indistinguishable and so you can't so what the bible will not allow us to uh, join together meaning your sexual fallenness and your human dignity you know your actual humanity um, the culture wants something more than to do that and so when you know that the adage used to be one of the reasons why some of the older bishops that with whom I've spoken about this have had difficulty understanding any problem uh, retired bishops I should say with um with the quote-unquote uh, celibate gay movement is that all they understand when they hear the word um, homosexual is an activity not an identity. And so this has been the great shift. And that's what the bishop's letter was trying to redirect is like, we understand what you're saying. And we understand that you have these these desires that you're fighting, and we support that, and that you're trying to be celibate, and we support that, and that you're faithful, and all of these things we support, but we will not allow, at least the letter says, for us to to go the way of the world and identify the the essence of who you are as a person, as the per, as the people with whom you would like to sleep. I mean, we're just not going to do that. And I think that's why, as shocking as it is, as you point up these these realities, it's like that's what we're actually. Actually, that's how the bible describes it is that these affections disordered affections can dishonor as paul says dishonor you you know when we give ourselves up to dishonorable passions but they're not the final word in front of the gospel and that's they can be confessed and absolved just as much as any other sin but not less so than any other sin and that's really the argument because because to to sort of maintain a positive uh, identifier with, is with what otherwise is simply a, a, a sexual desire is something that the Bible prohibits. And I think that's that's just where we are. And so the bishop said it clearly. We've talked about this for, for 25 years indirectly and for five years explicitly. Um, they doubled down. They have been thoughtful and clear. And it's going to, at some point, come to a head where if you persist in this, well, then there are other places and people who will affirm that. But it turns out, and it seems to be the case, that our church and her bishops are not... Mm-hmm. Um, are not going to do that. And I'm grateful for that personally.
1: Okay. Let's move on to the next thing that comes up in the post in his discussion of the relationship between ACNA and global Anglicanism. If you're looking for these quotes, as we go through, um, one of the things that we are told is that this letter or this statement gives gay people who desire to be faithful, as we've heard, to the biblical sexual ethic, these Christians who experience same-sex attraction, it gives them the impression, and I'm quoting now, that there's no real willingness to continue listening to them and seeking to understand their experience better. It also risks undermining the already challenging biblical ethic by adding to it further unnecessary extra biblical strictures. And this is the part I want you guys to react to specifically this in turn, he says, is likely to make the revisionist position more attractive, not just to many of those who experience same sex attraction, but to the many other Christians who currently accept the teaching of scripture and traditional teaching of the church as authoritative, but recognize how hard that is for those who are gay. So his assertion here is that this sort of clarity from the ACNA is going to actually push people away from scriptural truth toward revisionism.
2: I'm, I'm, I think I guess I'm more confident in in the power and efficacy of God's word than the man is. So, so I, I, I think I, I don't think that speaking the truth as God reveals it um, will ultimately drive anyone away who was not already away <laughs> so so it, it might it might certainly i mean what what is what is what does jesus say mm-hmm that the Holy Spirit's task is through the church on earth that's after right. he's gone to heaven is to convict the world of sin. That's right. Um, and that's never pleasant that the, 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 human, the human soul always, always. And
0: unrighteousness and unbelief. Yeah. The, yeah, absolutely. Right. Back.
2: Right. right. And so, in the, and so the, the human soul unredeemed always, always hardens itself in, in, in response to that unless God's grace uh, moves it to receive, to receive the truth. So, so I don't, I mean, I, I, I am having a hard time understanding how, The truth will repel, unless, of course, you think there's some other way to to draw like so is the argument we need to set aside the truth so that we can attract someone to the church using something less than or half of the truth. Um, and then to try to attract them in and then maybe, I don't know, slowly, gradually <laughs> unveil, unveil the truth of them. Well, this is just a variation uh, of I the see.
0: argument that we've been hearing for at least my entire adult Christian life, which is that, you know, we we, we have to meet people where they are and we're going to, you know, we, we can't be too um, uh, straightforward and direct about what the Bible says about things, particularly with respect to sexuality, to be frank. I mean, that seems to be a, you know a big deal in many people's lives, uh, whether they have too much or too little of it. Um, And so, you know, it's often couched in the sort of, at least in my experience, when you're doing like pre-marriage counseling, you know, people are living together, you know, it's often, it's often, and perhaps they're not fully invested in the church. You know, the advice was that for the sake of mission, for the sake of, of not pushing them further away, you shouldn't bring up the traditional Christian um, sexual ethic with respect to this, because it might offend them, or maybe it'll make you feel mean or something like this. And, you know, I bought into that very early on and then saw the, um, the wreckage uh, that that produced in certain people's lives, but also um, eventually became convinced that, you know, we were selling people uh, we're baiting, switching people, you know, that we were, we were, we were sort of lessening the bar of entry. And then if we were honest, when we actually got in, we were, we were raising it to its appropriate height. And some people were saying, well, where did this all come from? You know, like, what do you mean? I thought this was, I thought this was sort of like a, you know, a spiritual club that this was a lot cooler than, than you you now are. Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I think that whole argument about sort of that the, the hard teaching will drive people away. I mean, again, we don't sound like we don't have biblical warrant for even this very instance. I mean, in John six, when Jesus starts teaching about the actual reality of what it'd be like to have him provide bread and wine for them, his body and blood. And it says very clearly that it was not only a hard teaching, but many of his disciples left. And so at that point, you'd what you expect sort of modern missional minded people to say. And then Jesus said, no, no. Just kidding, guys. It's not that hard at all. Like, come on back, the water's fine. But instead, he just turned to Peter and said, Are you gonna leave too? And Peter says, Where else am I gonna go? You have the words of eternal life. And I think, you know, we we are sympathetic to the fact that the law kills. I mean, it has killed us and continues to kill us. You know, Paul writes in Romans 4 that the law provokes wrath. I mean, the law exposes those places of rebellion and and sin in our lives that we, if we can run from like Jonah and Nineveh, like we don't want to go. we 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 want to get the heck away from here. And yet, by the power of the Holy Spirit that is used in service of bringing new life by faith through the gospel. And so we can't preach one word of God. You know, we preach the law and the gospel and trust that by the power of the Holy Spirit that the, the most confusing thing in the world, i.e. the cross, will continue to be foolish for some and a stumbling block for others, but for us it'll be the power of God for salvation. And that's that's much more trustworthy than anyone's sort of book on missional leadership in the 21st century for in, the, in the Anglican context or whatever the case you can imagine being written uh, will be in my life at least.
1: I suppose this is the time to talk about the relationship between the statement from the College of Bishops in the ACNA and the response to the Dear Gay Anglicans letter by the Archbishop of Nigeria, who wrote a very strongly worded letter. Uh, Maybe it was a statement, not a letter, but certainly directed at the ACNA for creating the... Circumstances around which this sort of thing could happen. And that letter is quoted, or not necessarily quoted at length, but quoted a lot in this article. And it also, this article uh, quotes a communion partner bishop within the Episcopal Church as saying, This, that is the letter from Nigeria, is an unmitigated tragedy that will bear no good fruit. It has already caused harm to the side B Anglicans it targets. But the implications of this letter are far bigger than that. The letter expresses a hatred that is incompatible with the gospel of Christ. Matt, I know you've, you've written a little bit about what you think about the letter from the primate of Nigeria. Why don't you say a word about how it relates to the statement
2: and um, how the two might be seen to either work
1: in concert
2: or not? Well, I, when I first read it I thought this is a statement from the church uh, the Anglican Church on Mars because it was just it was so I, I, at least the first two paragraphs where the, the the Church of Nigeria was kind of describing what our bishops said there seemed to be no connect no no connection to what our bishops were actually saying to what they were they were understanding our bishops to say so they 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 heard our bishops recognizing that there are people within our communion with our provincial communion. Who have same-sex desire as some kind of license for for same-sex desire, rather than a call to confess, uh, live a life of repentance, which is what it was. And so, I, and I'm not sure what what why that misreading was there, but it was a it was a significant misreading, and it it has caused a great deal of of Damage in the relationship between the well. And correct
0: A. me if I'm wrong, Matt. But at the time of because you know more about this than I do. But at the time of that writing, they seemed to still be under the impression that the Gay Anglicans letter was was part and parcel of of the pastoral statement, right? I mean, that were they reading those together?
2: They were. They thought no. They thought that uh, they thought that the Gay Anglicans letter was something that was brought about because of room that had been
1: left yeah, open oh, yeah. okay. by okay. the original statement
2: exactly i was asking exactly. for a
0: friend i knew that already
2: <laughs> <laughs> no they, they believe they believe that they believe that the statement by our bishops uh, uh provided like nick, nick was saying the groundwork for the gay Anglican statement and then of course you know now that now that our bishops have opened the door let a thousand daisies bloom and we're going to have all kinds of expressions of homosexuality leading up to of course the the uh, reintroduction of same-sex blessings and then marriages which i don't i so again i don't see how you can I, I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding that misreading of our bishop's statement. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of political stuff that ha- that flowed out of the the departure of the two Cana dioceses back a couple years ago ago, Cana West and and um, the Trinity Diocese that were part of Cana. And their decision to continue to have domestic, Nigeria's decision to continue to have domestic dioceses in the United States. And I'm wondering if, I mean, I don't know, this is just total speculation, but some of that bad blood may just have carried over into a purposeful you know, misreading of, of what our bishops meant. Um, but that having been said, I mean, I do, I do want to say that I agree that, I mean, the Nigerian bishops had a good point about, about, about discipline especially in the last paragraph of their of their statement where they said, look, the, the bishops who are opposing the corporate expressed will of the House or the College of Bishops, along with the lay people, need to be subject to discipline because this kind of thing spreads like yeast. I agree with that. I mean, I, I, I think that, uh, who knows, I'll probably get a call, but I think Bishop Hunter should be called <laughs> to repent and recant, or he should be under discipline. And I think the same thing for Peter Volk and uh, all those, because this is this is a movement if you write if you read peter volk's ar- uh, article he is going to start a movement he wants to undermine our present understanding of sexuality
0: well and again not to beat a dead horse or to continue to beat a, a unresounding gong or to continue to beat any um, musical instrument for that matter but it's a it's We've been here before. I mean, the narrative that we are all a part of well before the ACNA was formed that, that described the, um, the the sort of downfall of the Episcopal Church began in no small way with the failure of the bishops to censure Bishop Ryder. And we talk about Bishop Pike. Then we talk about, you know, the the um, the sort of outlaw um, ordinations. And we talk, you know, just so on and so forth. And so, you know, some of these bishops are like, fool me, 14 times... Shame on uh, you know, fool me once, shame on me, fool me 14 times, shame on you. And they're like, We've we these are the people that wrote this letter. Like this is the reaction that Archbishop Foley had. These are the, this is the the response that I don't see how this was unexpected when a direct pastoral guidance, which was um had all sorts of caveats, but even so said something, was immediately contravened. What what did people expect? You know, and what in this all this pearl clutching and hand wringing about bishops saying, you know, by the way, we meant what we said. Is really quite shocking to me, and I don't think it's in good faith. I think it's part of a, uh, a clickbait and Twitter uh, emphasis to for some other end. Because because this sort of feigned incredul- incredulity about uh, you know how could you possibly when they just told you how they could possibly in um, you know six pages and a year long task force and all of the bishops signing on is just hard to it's hard to take seriously. And so I think. Again, I mean, I think that that, you know, I don't know all the details, you know, a lot more about the Nigerian respect uh, than I do. But but like we talked about last week, um, you know, there were some people like I spoke uh, or someone um, intimated the other day that, you know, for a brief moment, it was as if the ACNA had actually lost the plot. And there was like a you know like a gut punch like around the world like just for a moment like it turns out there was corrected and it was it was addressed but that you know for 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 thousands if not millions of of Anglican Christians around the world the ACNA uh, rightly is seen in my opinion as a source of hope and a and a and a lighthouse of orthodoxy in a um, otherwise uh, dying uh, Western Anglican Church and uh, and so for a brief moment that was called into question and so I think um, that. That's what how that Nigerian response needs to be read in no small way is that they were they were basically shell shocked for a moment about you know could this be true <laughs> like are we reading this correctly and thankfully we were able to um, to assure them that they had um, not had had seen the whole picture.
1: Well, let's finish up where we started. As Mister Cotard wraps up his piece, he says that supporters of the Jerusalem Declaration pledge quote to work together to seek the mind of Christ on issues that divide us, end quote. The pastoral statement from ACNA's College of Bishops and the reactions to it show that such work, urgently seeking together the mind of Christ, is now needed both within Western contexts and even more so globally among all those who, quote, acknowledge God's creation of humankind as male and female and the unchangeable standard of Christian marriage between one man and one woman as the proper place for sexual intimacy and the basis of the family. He, in the earlier paragraph, talks about acknowledging freedom in secondary matters, which is another quote from the Jerusalem Declaration. The implication there is this is a secondary matter, and this is something that we should put our differences aside on. So as we wrap up this episode, let's, let's have a brief discussion of something that we've talked about before, which is when are issues worth bringing up even though they threatened to divide
2: okay this is the same same argument that was made during and some of you who are listening maybe maybe in, in diapers in this taking place but uh, when Tori uh of the the former rector of Truro Church in Virginia was Partnering up with the Bishop of Virginia, the Episcopal Bishop of Virginia, who is pro same-sex marriage, um, and Torbach was is the time part of, a member of the ACNA, a priest in the ACNA, and you know a lot of people had a raise, "You can't do this." Well, there was people from FULCRUM. There were people from the ACI, who, ACI, who were saying, "No, no, no, no. Look, this is. We're all Christians here. We can all say the creed. We can all." Uh, you gather around the same table. We have this difference about 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 orthodox sexuality, um, but it's a it's a secondary difference. It's a non essential difference. It's adiaphora. But when of course when Paul said what Paul says is that those who engage in sexual behaviors like this unrepentantly can't enter the kingdom of heaven. So I'm sorry. There's no way you cut that. Is that a secondary? A secondary matter or a non-essential matter already offer any possible way. Uh, this might seem to be secondary because we're just because if if, if Andrew Gardner wants to portray this as just primarily about about terminology, okay, I can see how he might say it's secondary. It's just using about words, but it's but because we what we've seen is it's not just about words. It's about how you understand the human person, and at heart, I think it's a it goes to the divide between Pelagianism and Augustinianism between grace and and what the human person is and what the person human person is capable of. If you have an anthrop, a semi Pelagian anthropology, you think there that, um, you know, if you dig down deep enough, you're going to find, you know, gold (laughs) down down in the human self. And you're going to want to defend that. And you're going to want to identify with that. You're going to say, this is the true me. That is that, that goes beyond a secondary a secondary matter and rises to the level of an essential matter, because um, especially with an Anglicanism, we have an an Augustinian, I would say a biblical, but, you know, for just just to be less controversial, (laughs) an Augustinian view of the person. Which says we, every aspect of our nature has been has been ruined by sin, and so we don't identify with any part of that ruined aspect. Such were we, but we've been made new. We've been washed, been justified, been you know sanctified um in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. So we don't we don't identify with those things. So I think I think as long as you is if you I think if you stay in the level of terminology, yeah, it's a secondary matter, but since the bishops weren't staying in the level of terminology, they're going to the heart of the issue, which is what is a man? What is a woman? right uh what is a person that means it's, it's not it's not secondary it's essential that's
0: right I mean, what's changed here, you know, for, since we've had Leviticus at the very least written, if not, I mean, before we have an awareness by God himself, that part of the fallenness of human sexuality will be disordered passions. So we have, we've had thousands of years of that reality, and we've had thousands of years of people generation in and out dealing with the ideal versus the reality and the difference between the two and coming up with some means of, of navigating that, you know, via the sacrificial system. And then finally in the Christian system through Jesus, the final sacrifice, and therefore then the, the, the rhythm of absolution, confession, I mean, confession and absolution. So sexual fallenness is nothing new. Uh, God's ideal for human sexuality is nothing new. The reality of the persistence of sin and the even, yea, and the regenerate is nothing new in the church. And so what are we actually dealing with here is is the only thing that has changed in the past generation, if not a little bit longer, has been an elevation of your sexual quote unquote, identity to the level of your um, essential personhood. And this is something that has has always been a possibility for uh, the world, and it is um, now a uh, ma- perhaps even a majority opinion in the West. And it's something that the Church will has seen, has uh, has heard, and will continue to reject. And so this is what we're doing. And it doesn't mean that we reject the people. It doesn't mean that we don't understand them to be part and and one degree separated in many cases from our own uh, families, if not even in many cases the. Preacher himself, him or herself, as the case might be, is painfully aware of the, the wages of sin in their lives with respect to their brokenness. And yet our message remains the same because the diagnosis remains the same and the prescription remains the same. And so, again, there's nothing that has changed in this except for a uh, cultural uh, sort of repaganization of and an elevation and an idolatry of a sexual desire to the level of human identity. And that's something we simply reject. Well, we don't need to go further than what Bishop Dobbs and Ruck said on the issue about what their intentions were and why they wrote it, which was precisely to this point, which is that we as Christian people see the reality and dignity of human beings to be something far greater than the people that they have sexual desires for. And that the the idea that sex would even be a constitutive part of your identity as a a quote-unquote heterosexual or quote-unquote homosexual is, is a laughable and an idolatrous concept to a Christian worldview. And that's what we will continue to say. And it will sound more and more ridiculous, you know, as people you meet say, well, if I couldn't have, if I, if I was forced to a life of celibacy, you might as well kill me now, you know, or something like this. Like, well, Lord have mercy, you know, on that On on, and he has had mercy more importantly, and he's delivered people from that type of confused and, and hellish idolatry. And to the extent that, you know, the quote unquote gay Christian movement is wrestling with it. Well, then we're going to wrestle we're going to dialogue and, and, and walk alongside and do the best we can to affirm what we can. Um, but, but I think that we've reached a point where some of the, the sort of, as it were, the, the, the guardrails have been put in place and we have been instructed. And I think with great wisdom and pastoral sensitivity as to how the conversation will be framed going forward for Christian people in this Christian church. And I, again, um, as a father of young children who's beginning to teach them about um, you know, all of the various realities of being human, which include are not limited to uh, sexual desire, you know, it's instructive and corrective to me even to begin to talk about Christians, Christians who um, struggle with blank this, that, and the other, um, including their sexuality and beginning to reset and rework my own thinking on the issue to the end of hopefully being a more articulate and precise and clear exponent and proclaimer of the gospel to this increasingly confused and lost and hurting world.
1: We really do encourage you to go to the diocesan website of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word and listen to that conversation between Bishop Ruck and Bishop Dobbs. It's a a wonderful clarification about what the ACNA was trying to accomplish with this statement, why they wrote it the way they did, what went into its creation. It's a wonderfully illuminating and elucidating conversation. We're going to call it this week. That's going to be all the time that we have. We do appreciate you listening. If you want to keep the conversation going with us, you can listen, uh, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes and email us at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. And of course, join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks, as always, to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm.